Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Well, last Sunday, uh, Pastor Dustin Agard kicked off a new series for the month of December called The Signs of Christmas. Not the typical signs that you see this time of year about sails and sights and songs, but signs that communicate the good news that Emmanuel, God with us, has come. Or as Pastor Dustin described it last week, the Christmas story is the most extravagant hand-delivered invitation our world has ever known. These are signs that we have talked about frequently at Journey over the last 12 and a half years, and they're deeply embedded in our spiritual DNA. So the first sign that we talked about last week, Pastor Dustin talked about this, is everybody's welcome. And what's so amazing about this is the everybody part. You see, what scandalized Jesus in the eyes of many folks in his day, especially the religious leaders, more than anything else was how he would welcome, love, accept, embrace, and include anybody who came to him. The gospels are full of these stories. Jewish zealots, Roman uh, soldiers, pagans, Samaritans, prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, sinners, slaves, cheats, adulterers, the demon-possessed, the unclean, the unwashed, the unloved, the spiritual losers, the religious dropouts. They're drawn to Jesus like a magnet, and he just welcomes them. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. Why? Because he had a way of making them feel welcome to be around him. This was such a distinctive attribute of Jesus' ministry that when the religious leaders who became his greatest critics looked at him, they said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They did not intend that as a compliment, you understand. But Jesus wore it like a giant badge of honor, even at his birth. We see blue collar, swing shift shepherds, and wealthy aristocratic magi coming to worship him. With Jesus, everybody is welcome. And if you missed Pastor Dustin's message last week, let me encourage you to uh, go back and, and watch that. Today, I'm gonna talk about the second sign of Christmas and something that is at the heart of who we are as a church at Journey. Nobody's perfect. Everybody say that with me right now. Nobody's perfect. And of the three signs that we're going to look at this month, this would be the most fitting sign for me to preach about. I had one lady tell me years ago, Pastor John, we've had other preachers tell us that they were sinners just like the rest of us, but you're the first one we believed. I think that was a compliment. I had another lady tell me one time, John, your sermons are shallow, your humor is juvenile, and you just need to grow up. I looked at her and said, liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> this is definitely the right sign for me to preach on. Nobody's perfect. Now, 
to help us see how this sign becomes visible in the Christmas story, we need to look no further than the very first chapter of the very first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, or the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew was there when it all happened. And yet Matthew chooses to start his story about Jesus, not with a birth in Bethlehem. He went back farther, and I'm talking way back. He did not start by saying, once upon a time, a woman named Mary was visited by an angel. He did not begin with sweet little baby Jesus lying in a manger. He began somewhere else, somewhere that to us might seem irrelevant and unnecessary and quite frankly, boring. He began with the genealogical record of Jesus' family. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 reads like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then Matthew proceeds to list 42 male names and five female names. It's easy to lose patience with these verses and let your eyes skim down the page to get to some real action, but that would be a serious scriptural oversight. You see, listen to me, the story of Jesus is not just about a birth, but about a coming. God had carefully orchestrated and patiently planned for the arrival of his son through the ages, even before the earth was created. And so it's important that Jesus is introduced with the proper messianic credentials and the crucial connections to people who have been significant to Israel's history as a nation. We live, in Western culture in particular, we live in a very individualistic culture in which we commend ourselves to others with a list of our degrees or our experiences or our accomplishments. That's not how it was done in the world Matthew was writing for. You see, in a communal, family-oriented society, a well-documented genealogy is really your resume. In Matthew's world, it was your family, your, your pedigree, your tribe, and your clan that constituted your resume and qualified you for service. So a genealogy was a way of saying to the world, this is who I am. It's also interesting to note that people in those days tinkered with their resumes just as people do today. We tend to leave out the parts of our past that might not make us look as good as we want. That's why one guy said he paid $100 to have his family tree looked up and then he paid 1000 to have it hushed up. <laughs> and people did that in ancient times too. The purpose of a genealogical record was to impress onlookers with the high quality and the respectability of your roots. But what is unusual about Matthew's genealogy is he includes some people in Jesus' ancestral record that leaves you kind of scratching your head. You see, here's how the genealogical game usually worked. Kings and emperors would hire historians to trace their family back to make a connection to somebody significant that would validate their claim to the throne. Being born in the royal line is no trivial matter, and we understand that even today. But as historians have studied these things through the years, 
they've discovered that it's not uncommon for there to be gaps in the genealogical record, and sometimes gaps of significant numbers of years. In other words, when they add up the years represented by the people's lives listed, there's too many years and not enough people. So what they've concluded is that it was customary to skip entire generations in these ancient records to connect people to those who were considered the best of their bloodline and delete those who would be an embarrassment. Now, why would they do that? The same reason you don't talk about your cousin Eddie. (laughs) Or Aunt Bethany or Uncle Lewis, right? I mean, there are some family members you don't want anybody looking up or looking you up. Am I right? You want them hushed up. Everybody has family members we don't talk about. But here's what's different and fascinating about Matthew's genealogy. While most kings and emperors and royalty go out of their way to omit embarrassing relatives from their family histories, Matthew seems to go out of his way to include people in the ancestral line of Jesus who were some of the biggest embarrassments in the history of ancient Israel. People who have strange, R-rated, violent, bizarre backgrounds that we probably would not want associated with our family heritage. Just a quick glance at the lineage of Jesus sets a stage for this. First of all, ancient Jewish genealogy typically only listed men. Father, son, father, son, father, son. Yet Matthew mentions five women in this list, and four of them are not the kind of women you want to be associated with. And almost all of the men he lists have a dark secret or a disgraceful scandal attached to their name. The irony of this genealogy is while Matthew is building his case that yes, Jesus is of divine origin, and yes, he is from the Davidic bloodline, he also goes out of his way to make the case that there are some grade A, top of the line sinners associated with Jesus in his family history. People who've done some things that you would never dream of. And as he weaves this tapestry of ancestors who are related to Jesus, it's as if Matthew highlights and underscores and bolds the sinfulness of those we wouldn't even want brought up. Now, why would he do that? Anybody remember what Matthew did for a living before he started following Jesus? Anybody remember? Tax collector. And I think somebody at Lake County said tax collector too. He probably didn't get invited to many Hanukkah parties. Tax collectors have never been very popular people. Considered a traitor by his Jewish kinsmen and used by the Romans to fund their empire, Matthew was ostracized and alienated and marginalized. The very nature of his job kept him from practicing his Jewish religion. He couldn't keep the law and be in his profession. So basically, Matthew was written off by everybody else. But Jesus one day calls him to follow him. And Matthew, the tax collector, becomes Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, an eventual gospel writer. And as he begins to write the story about the life of Jesus, he didn't want his readers to miss the point that Jesus is not just another religious leader and teacher 
who has come to condemn the rest of us. This is a unique person who came to do what no other can do, to seek and to save that which is lost, including people like Matthew. But to make his point even more emphatically, he highlights several names in Jesus' ancestral list as a testimony to the amazing saving and rescuing grace of God. And here is the big lesson that I think Matthew wants us to learn from this genealogy. The kind of people Jesus came from reveals the kind of people Jesus came for. Let me say that one more time. The kind of people Jesus came from reveals the kind of people Jesus came for. So let's start reading. Matthew chapter one, verse one, and you'll see what I mean. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Why did Matthew feel like he had to bring her up. Nobody else's mother is mentioned so far. And of all the mothers to bring up, Tamar's story is so bizarre and so unsavory and so twisted that if I read it to you and you didn't know it was in the Bible, you'd say, that's sick. That's inappropriate to talk about. A brief, sanitized summary of her story goes like this. Tamar was a two-time widow, having been married to two brothers, who were both the sons of Judah. Judah had one more son that by Jewish law, he was required to let her marry so she could have an heir, but Judah refused to let his third son marry her. So Tamar resorted to tricking Judah himself into sleeping with her by pretending to be a woman who turns tricks for a living. And from that one night encounter, Tamar became pregnant with twins, Perez and Zerah, one of which became an ancestor in Jesus's messianic bloodline. And it's like Matthew pauses here and says, y'all remember Tamar, don't you? <laughs> yeah, we do, but why bring her up? Well, I just want you to know Tamar's in the family tree of Jesus. That's all. Let's go on. <laughs> Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And you can almost hear Matthew's Jewish readers roll their eyes and say, why are we talking about mothers again? And why this one? You see, for those of you who spent some time reading the Bible, you'll remember that Rahab had a nickname, didn't she? And it wasn't Rahab the happy homemaker. No, it was Rahab the harlot. Rahab didn't have to pretend to be a prostitute. She was legit, and she also ran the best little you-know-what in Jericho. <laughs> and she wasn't even Jewish, for crying out loud. She was a Canaanite woman, the very people God told the Israelites to annihilate, to wipe them out. She shouldn't have been listed in anybody's genealogy from a Jewish background. But Matthew again pauses and says, you remember Rahab, don't you? Yes, we remember her. Can we move on, please? 
You see, Tamar and Rahab are the kind of people you leave out of your family tree. You don't ever bring them up to future generations. Yet Matthew, right out of the gate in the story of Jesus, seemingly goes out of his way to let everybody know up front, these are the kind of people Jesus came from because these are the kinds of people that Jesus came for. Let's continue. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, another mother who was not of Jewish ancestry is mentioned. Ruth was a Moabitess, another group that were particularly despised by ancient Jews. And the story of how Ruth and Boaz came together definitely raises some eyebrows. But then what Matthew writes next rubs their noses in one of the most scandalous stories in the life of their most beloved and revered king. Let's read. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. That's an important point that he, King David, David as a king, I mean, he was promised a Messiah or a a ruler would come from him. So Matthew underscores, yes, King David. Jesus is related to King David. That's the main thing his Jewish audience would want to know. The Messiah was prophesied to come from this line. If Jesus didn't come from that line, he can't be the Messiah. If he's not related to David, he's not the one. So Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy to prove that, yes, Jesus is related to all the right people, but Matthew, he couldn't leave it alone. He just couldn't say that. No, no, no. In one of the great understatements, In all of scripture, Matthew then writes, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. What? Let's read that again. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, if you knew nothing about the biblical background of the story, you may find it strange. Matthew doesn't give the name of the woman who was Solomon's mother. I mean, he names Tamar, he names Rahab, he names Ruth. He didn't name her. Her name was Bathsheba, by the way, but Matthew doesn't use her name. He doesn't even say she was David's wife. He says she had been Uriah's wife. That is not intended as a slight against Bathsheba, but it was definitely intended as a slam against David. What's he talking about? When David was a fugitive running for his life and hiding in caves from King Saul, a group of men went out into the wilderness to be with him. They came around David. They put their lives on the line to protect David. This group in the scripture was called David's mighty men. These guys risked everything for David. And Uriah was one of those men, a loyal friend of David to whom David owed his life. And how did David repay him? Years later, after David became king, he saw Uriah's wife bathing from his royal rooftop. He's overcome with lust. He summoned her to his palace. He took her to the royal bedroom and he slept with her and she became pregnant. And at first, David tried to bring Uriah back home from the battle he was fighting on David's behalf and get him liquored up and let him sleep with his wife so it would look like it was his child. But Uriah refused 
to lay with his beautiful wife when his soldiers were laying in a battlefield foxhole. It turns out Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. Ultimately, David sent Uriah back to the front lines to be killed in battle so he could then marry Uriah's widow and one of their children who would later be born to David and Bathsheba was Solomon from whom Jesus descended. That's a lot to take in. It's almost as if Matthew's saying, well, looky here. The most celebrated king in Israel's history fathered a child by another man's wife, and God chose that child to be in the lineage of Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Of all of David's children, and David had a lot of children, God chose a woman he had no business being involved with in the first place to bear a son, Solomon, who's in the ancestral line of Jesus, who is the Christ. So, if you're keeping track at home, so far in Jesus' genealogy, we see moral outsiders, adulterers, and adulteresses, and prostitutes. Two of Jesus' most prominent male ancestors, Judah and David, were deeply flawed men and moral failures in many ways. We also see cultural outsiders and racial outsiders and gender outsiders, people who by law were excluded from the presence of God, and yet they're all publicly acknowledged and highlighted as ancestors of Jesus the Messiah. Why does Matthew do this? I believe it was because of this. Matthew lived in a culture where men and women would constantly look to build a platform of personal righteousness. A platform of personal righteousness where they could approach God. People who were constantly constructing a platform based on their good works and their good deeds and saying, hey God, would you look at me? Would you answer my prayers? Could you grant my request? Could you let me into heaven? Why? Because the platform I come to you on is my righteousness and my good works and my blessability and aren't I something special to you, God? That was man's approach to God back then. And that's many people's approach to God today. Now, our version might go something like this. God, nobody's perfect, but I'm better than most. (laughs) I pay my taxes. I pay my tithe. I go to church every week. I don't particularly understand the sermon and why we're going over all these weird names I can't pronounce, but I'm here. I keep the 10 command, nine of the, okay, eight. Okay, most of the 10 commandments. I can't name them, but I keep them. And I come to you asking you to let me into heaven if there is such a place and answer my prayers if you still do such a thing on the basis of my personal platform of goodness. Matthew lived in a culture that was saturated with people coming to God based on this. And as he launches into the greatest story ever told, he wanted to make sure that people understand that the story of Jesus is not merely another version of personal platform building. This is not the law of Moses revisited. This is not a repackaging of more of the same old thing. This is not You better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry kind of story. This is not a story about gaining access to God through personal platform building. 
This has absolutely nothing to do with creating a platform upon which you can stand to merit God's favor based on your commitments and your promises and your plans and your rededications and your resolutions. Matthew says, I'll prove it to you. Your God went out of his way to weave into the lineage of the Messiah people who had absolutely no moral high ground to stand on whatsoever. Prostitutes, liars, thieves, murderers, manipulators, violent, dishonest people, every representation of the fallen nature of humanity that you can think of. These people are all in the family tree of Jesus, the Messiah. Why? Say it with me. Because the kind of people Jesus came from reveal exactly the kind of people Jesus came for. That's why John Ortberg calls the genealogy of Jesus the gospel before the gospel. Ortberg writes, this is Matthew saying, now with Jesus coming, anybody who wants to can get in because Jesus just welcomes everybody. He welcomes everybody to be in his family, Hittites and Moabites and Canaanites and Jerichoites and New Ageites and Republicanites and Democratites, just anybody at all. He wants them all to come in. Martin Luther said it's as though God intended for people to hear this genealogy and say to themselves, oh, Christ is the kind of person who's not ashamed of sinners. See, he even puts them in his family tree. So if there's anybody here in Apopka, anybody at Lake County, anybody join us online, and you may be tempted to think a thought like this, I have messed up too much. My sin is too dark. God cannot use someone who's done what I've done. I think Jesus would say to you today, are you kidding me? Have you seen my family? Have you seen the people I come from? You have no idea what I can do if you just open your eyes and open your heart to me. Jesus embodied this so deeply that he's called the friend of sinners. Matthew's gospel tells us that, by the way a friend of sinners. And today we think about that phrase as a compliment. Several of you said amen to that. In fact, there's an old gospel song that people used to sing. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Let me tell you, nobody was singing that as a song in Jesus' day. That was an accusation, not a commendation. You see, Matthew's tipping us off. This Messiah, this rabbi, is going to get in a lot of trouble over friendships and associations with people like this. He's going to be different, and people expect him to be. This is not your typical once upon a time, a prince came to rescue people kind of story. You see, the Christmas story is a story of contrast. The story of Christmas was originally told to a group of people who thought that this, this personal platform, was the only way to God. Earn it. Do this. Don't do that. And the thing Matthew feared more than anything else was that people reading the story of Jesus would think his coming was just more of the same. The latest version of personal platform building. Because that's all there's ever been. And it's still all there's ever been since. Every other world religion says this. I'm going to give it my best shot and God will either say to me, that's good enough, or you came up short. But whatever happens depends on what I'm able to do. If it is to be, the old saying says, it's up to me. Matthew comes along and he says, the story of Jesus is not about that. The story of Jesus is about 
receiving a gift. A gift that you can't earn, that you don't deserve, that is given, not based on the righteousness of the receiver, but because of the grace of the giver. And grace is not earned. Grace is offered. And it's offered to anyone who will trust Jesus. Isn't that unbelievable? If you've been around church any time at all, you've probably heard John 3.16. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. A lot of people know John 3.16. Do you know John 3.17? John 3.17, very next verse says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already. Do you know why Jesus didn't come to condemn us? Because it would be like condemning the sun for being hot or water for being wet. What's the point? It's just what we are. Sinful, self-condemned people separated from God. And it's because of what we are that gave God the reason to send who he did. Not a lawgiver, not just an example, not just a teacher, but a savior who is Christ the Lord. It's Christmas, everybody. The challenge for us this Christmas, are we men and women who are gonna be just a bunch of church-going, Bible-reading, prayer-offering people who have missed the message of Christmas by continuing to come to God based on this platform and saying, God, I'm not so bad. God, I'm going to do better. God, I'm going to start this. God, I'm going to stop that. God, I, 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 I. Are we willing to be men and women who would transfer our trust? Who would be willing to say, God, I'm not approaching you based on my personal platform of righteousness. I'm approaching you based on the platform of Christ's righteousness. As one who has received an undeserved gift and unearned credit to my bankrupt spiritual account. And I receive it through faith, not by my promises or my goodness, but just by trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. Friends, that's the message of Christmas. And as we move deeper into this season and into this series, here's the question I want to ask you. Where do you stand in your relationship to God? Some of you stand firmly and proudly right here, whether you want to admit it or not. But can I tell you something I've learned over many decades of ministry? Many people in the church stand like this. And here's what we say. I believe in Jesus, but I'm not so bad myself. I believe in Jesus, but basically I'm a good person. And if I were to stand before God and he would say, why should I let you into my forever presence? I would say, I believe in Jesus and I've lived a pretty good life, Lord. You see, I got both things covered. The challenge for you this season is for you to totally transfer your trust from whatever personal platform of goodness and righteousness that you've been trying to build to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And friends, I want to ask you today to put your full weight 
down on him. There's an old story about a man, an elderly man, who'd refused to ride in an airplane all of his life. He didn't trust him. Kind of remind me of my dad. My dad ride, rode in a, a few airplanes, mainly to come to visit me and Melinda wherever we live, but he didn't trust him. He didn't like him. But a family emergency arose with some family members that lived a long way off, and the only way the old guy could get there in a timely manner was aboard an airplane. Much against his will, he did. And when he arrived on the other end of the flight, his son who was picking him up, the old man said to his son, son, I never put my whole weight down on that seat the whole time. <laughs> so many people know they need what only God can give, the mercy and grace through Jesus, but they never put their whole weight down on him, transferring their trust to him. Maybe today is the day you say to God, Heavenly Father, I place all my hope, all my trust, all my weight on the cross and empty grave of Jesus. The only reason I can come into your presence has absolutely nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the gift of grace that you've offered me. And I receive it by faith in the name of Jesus. His payment for my sin on the cross was full and final. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's the message of Christmas. That's what makes the good news the good news. That's the message that made Matthew the tax collector get up from his desk never to return again and start following a Galilean carpenter from Nazareth. And that's what made him years later write a genealogy with name after name that was a testimony to the grace of God. We're gonna close today by giving you an opportunity to transfer your trust to Jesus. And here's how it works. This isn't a magic prayer. <laughs> This isn't an out-of-body experience. This isn't a let's all sit quietly until God does something weird for somebody. This is, I, I, I say it like this. This is very similar to what happened when you got married, for those of us who are married. When you got married, you're already in love with the person you were married. You're already committed to them. You already planned to spend the rest of your life with them. And when you stood at the altar before God and your family and friends or whoever was there, you sealed the deal publicly and finally. And when somebody asks you when you're married, you don't say, well, I was around, or I think it was sometime during, or probably after the eighth day. <laughs> no, when somebody asks you when you were married, you say, I'd say June 4th, 1983. I was married. I remember the day. I remember the place. I got the ring to remind me. That's the day I sealed my relationship between me and my spouse. And today, we want to give you the opportunity to seal the deal in your relationship to God. You may say, well, Pastor, I didn't grow up in a church where people walk forward or where people became a Christian or we talked about being saved. That's okay. But let me tell you, the best thing you can do for your sake is to have a date that you can point to and say, December 11th, that's the day I transferred my trust. I believed in my heart. I confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And then I went down into the watery grave of baptism and I came up a new creation in Christ. Now I belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to me. We'll lead you in a prayer, Lake County, online. Apopka, you prayed out loud with me. You prayed under your breath. You changed the wording. It's not the wording of the prayer that matters. It's the transfer of trust that takes place in your heart between you and God. Would you bow your heads right now? Close your eyes. If you're in Apopka or Lake County or joining us online, you say, you know what? I finally understand it. I get it. I've been thinking about this anyway. This is the day, the time for me. 
I want to have a Christmas where Jesus isn't just a baby in a manger. He's a Savior and Lord of my life. If that describes you, then you just pray with me. Heavenly Father, I know I come up way short on my own. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've been trusted in my goodness. And it's simply not good enough. Today, I choose to transfer my trust to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. I believe that when he died, he died for me. And that his death on the cross was the full and final payment for all my sin. Right now, I'm putting my full weight on him. Trusting fully in his persevering promise and not my personal platform. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we all agreed and said, amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And through Jesus, anything is possible.